0: You're about to listen to Office Hours with me, Georgia Howe. This is a weekly companion series to PragerU's popular five-minute videos, where I explore various political and cultural topics with PragerU experts, asking questions and digging deeper to bring you perspectives that you may not hear in a traditional college classroom. To watch the video version of this series, click on the link in the description or go to dailywire.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm Georgia Howe with The Daily Wire. So today, there is broad agreement that some degree of climate change exists, and there's strong evidence that human activity may be a contributing factor. But today, most of the disagreement has to do with the severity of the problem, the reliability of the models, and most importantly, what the best strategy is moving forward. Despite these disagreements, most news outlets fail to represent the complexity of the problem and the nuance of the debate, opting instead to only focus on raising alarm. So what are the facts on climate change as we currently understand them? And what is the appropriate level of alarm? Joining us to help answer some of these questions is the author of the new book, Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, Steve Koonin. Steve's also an American theoretical physicist. He's the director of the Center for Urban Science and Progress at New York University and the former Undersecretary for Science in the Department of Energy under the Obama administration. Let's jump right in. Steve, thanks for joining me.
1: Great to be chatting with you, Georgia.
0: So, Steve, as we speak right now, the COP26 Global Climate Summit is ongoing in Glasgow. And one of their stated goals is to secure global net zero emissions by mid-century and to keep 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming within reach. Their reasoning for this is listed on their website. They say that at two degrees of global warming, there would be widespread and severe impacts on people and nature, that one third of the global population would be regularly exposed to severe heat and that would lead to health problems and more heat-related deaths. And they say that at 1.5 degrees, the impact would be serious, but not as severe. So what do you make of that claim? Well,
1: you know, I once about 10 years ago asked the guy who was the father of the two-degree limit, why did you pick two degrees? Not one and a half or two and a half or whatever. And he said two is about right. And it's an easy number for politicians to remember. And so, in fact, whether it's one and a half or two or even two and a half, I think the science is fuzzy enough that it doesn't matter very much. You know, we've already seen 1.1 degrees uh, over the course of the 20th century, from 1900 to about now. And the world has certainly not fallen apart while it's warm by that one point one degrees. In fact, the global population quadrupled since 1900, and we've seen the greatest improvement in human welfare that the world has ever seen. To think that another 0.8 or 0.9 degrees over the next 80 years is going to seriously derail things, kind of beggars belief.
0: Now, do you think that it's a realistic goal to get to net emissions or net zero emissions by mid-century? That's about 30 years from now.
1: No, that's I I, as I wrote in my book, Unsettled, uh, it's a practical impossibility. And here's why. For people to have better lives, to develop economically, they need energy. That's true of every society that's ever existed right now about 7 billion of the world's 8 billion people don't have sufficient energy, and they need that in order to improve their lives. Right now, the best way for them to get energy, the most reliable and convenient way is fossil fuels. And so, yes, we could probably send emissions to zero in 30 or 40 years, but you would be stunting the growth of much of the world and consigning them to a much poorer existence than they would have otherwise.
0: Now, they also had this claim that they say a third of the world's population would be regularly exposed to severe heat, and that would lead to the health problems and the deaths. What is that prediction based on? Where are they anticipating those deaths will be?
1: Well, the projections of deaths are extraordinarily fuzzy. Let's just put it that way. One famous prediction recently from the University of Chicago Said that if the temperature went up by four or five degrees, that we would see about 70 more deaths per 100,000, or about what we see from infectious diseases. But in fact, there are such large uncertainties in that, that there's some chance you would have fewer deaths. And if you take a much less extreme scenario, say a temperature rise of two degrees, it's kind of hard to see that there's any effect at all on deaths.
0: So when we watch the news, we often hear about how the climate science is settled. Um, but in your Prager U video, you talked about the uncertainties that are inherent in some of the models. Can you talk about some of those uncertainties?
1: Well, one of the most important uncertainties is in the climate models. And in particular, how the climate system responds to human influences. Human influences are very small compared to the natural size of the system, but the system is also very sensitive. And so that makes it very difficult to untangle the effects of human influences in the climate that already has been, and even more so to project into the future what the climate is going to do. Clouds are a big problem in the current climate models. Uh, They happen on much smaller scales, than the models can describe. And so you have to make assumptions, different people make different assumptions, and you get different answers for what the climate might do in the future.
0: Now, those are based on mostly computer models, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's some of the world's largest computers trying to address what is maybe the most challenging computational problem we've got.
0: So also at the COP26 Climate Summit. President Biden apologized that the U.S. withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord, and he promised that we would rejoin it. So, what are your feelings about the Paris Climate Accord, and what would be the everyday effects on Americans if we were to rejoin that agreement? Yeah.
1: So, um, the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, and what is being discussed in in Glasgow now, is an effort by the world's countries to reduce emissions sufficiently rapidly to reach this hypothetical one and a half degree guardrail. The deal is that the developed countries like the U.S. and Europe and Japan would reduce emissions as much as possible and pay the developing countries $100 billion a year in order to help them reduce their emissions or to deploy low emissions technologies. The fact is that even a hundred billion dollars a year is not sufficient to do that. And the developing countries are frankly in need of the energy. And so they're going to do what they're going to do to, to get more energy, as opposed to worrying about some pretty vague, uncertain and distant threat of climate change. You know, it's like for those countries. If you've got a bear chasing you, your attention is focused and you're not really worried about your cholesterol. You'll deal with that once you outrun the bear.
0: Now, in your video, you, in your PragerU video, you also talked about the lingering carbon dioxide in the air and how even if we made changes today, they would not have immediate effects. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: So carbon dioxide lives for centuries in the atmosphere And once we put it up by emitting it, by burning fossil fuels, it stays there. And so even if we can reduce emissions a little bit, it's still going to keep going up. If you want to stop it from going up, not necessarily go down, but just stop it from going up, you got to take emissions to zero. And that, given the demographic and developmental realities and the technology realities, Seems to me to be, to put it politely again, an extraordinary challenge.
0: So, what would be your suggestion going forward on a policy level of how we should address this issue? So, I mean, you've acknowledged that the the planet is is warming, that humans are probably uh, involved. What do you suggest?
1: So, you know, the headline is we need to cancel the climate crisis. All right? The current zeitgeist has so overhyped the threat. Uh, In fact, the science tells us that warming of even three degrees is expected to have a minimal economic impact and that we've got time to deal with this. So I think we need to sit down, not just with academics and regulators, but business and the general public and come up with a thoughtful plan that gets us there gracefully, on the timescale of perhaps a century or so, stop scaring young people about the fact that the world is going to end in twelve years because of climate change, and and do this in a thoughtful way—the way we treat every serious problem, not crash decarbonization.
0: So a few years ago, I was looking up polar bears online because you know I was a little worried about you know you you, you see that very sad photo of that starving polar bear. And I wanted to kind of check up on them and see how they were doing. And I was very surprised to see that their populations had rebounded. And that got me down this rabbit hole of researching where I found out that it's now difficult for researchers to research things like polar bears because sometimes it gives this information to the public that is not um, totally uh, in lockstep with the climate change message that they want to put forward. So, my last question for you is as it stands now, is there room for? robust debate and uh, a really nuanced conversation in the scientific community about climate change?
1: I think it happens within the confines of the scientific community. But when you get to discussions in the public, it is severely distorted. For example, there is an organization called Covering Climate Now, which has members of a number of major media outlets And they have agreed among themselves not to publish anything that disagrees with the narrative that we've broken the climate and we're all headed for certain disaster unless we take drastic steps. That, to me, is so antithetical to what I see as a scientist's job of informing policymakers, not persuading them.
0: All right. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you, follow you online?
1: Um, You know, I have a Medium page, and I occasionally put things there. I think the best thing people can do is have a look at the book. It's my best attempt to strip away the long game of telephone from the science to the public and give people a sense of what the scientific reports really say.
0: All right, Steve, thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Georgia, for talking with me.
0: If you enjoyed this conversation with Steve Koonin, make sure to go pick up his book titled Unsettled, what climate science tells us, what it doesn't. And while you're at it, you can check out his recent PragerU video, Is There Really a Climate Emergency? Until next week, I'm Georgia Howe. Thanks for tuning in. As a reminder, if you'd like to see the video version of this show, or if you haven't seen this week's PragerU five-minute video, make sure to click on the link in the description below, or head over to dailywire.com. We'll see you next Monday for a new interview with another PragerU presenter.